0: Hi, I'm Gigi McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Cozer, And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who.
1: Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't.
0: We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us.
1: You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts.
0: So give us a listen. And remember, keep talking Who. They
2: all say Who. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions or maybe the pinnacle American editions for all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels.
1: Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child, but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure something like that. Each episode hosts Eric Golbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video junkyard podcast you are listening to the doctor who target book club podcast happy listening
0: hello fellow time travelers i'm nick briggs and you are listening
2: to the doctor who target book club podcast enjoy your travels Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the virtuous task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations because we're not evil and it's plenty of evil, get it, yeah, it's terrible. These are getting harder to come up with as the years go by. My name is Tony Witt and today we have an equally virtuous three-person discussion panel including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me, There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we welcome back to the podcast a guest whose virtue is not at all questionable, the glamorous Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny.
0: You don't know me well enough. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Hi. No, you do. You do.
2: I do. But we have the the old gang back together because Jenny informs me that she hasn't been with us since Cave Monsters. And that was a while back. So good to have you back. Mm -hmm.
0: Thank you. I think you said it was getting to be somewhat of a sausage party and you needed somebody with a uterus so here i am i aim to please yes or i don't know someone who identifies as a woman we can open that up as well um that's
2: not the only requirement you know but (laughs) it is nice to have a female perspective yes
0: or someone who just comes into this pretty much every time being like i don't have any idea what's going on but I always check <laughs> to see if the author is alive or dead so that I temper my offensiveness and poor Mr. Dix has just passed away this last year. I, I didn't yeah. know. Um, 2019 RIP turns Dix. But I have good things to say about this and him and hopefully you all do as well. You always have so many things, you know, about these authors, Tony. So we'll we'll get to that.
1: You don't have to temper yourself either. We, we've said plenty of things that get people riled up about us. So, uh, yeah, especially yeah. about the dead. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially Terrence Dix, the sainted. So uh, God, that's for
2: damn true.
0: I'm so bad at this, though. I made this uh, slightly controversial Reddit post the other day, and I was, like, literally up all night thinking, oh, my God, someone's going to be mad and respond to this post. (laughs) And I couldn't sleep, and I had these terrible anxiety dreams, and I woke up at, like, 6 a.m. and was like, all right, I'm looking at my comments, you know, my inbox. And no one had even fucking replied, and I was like, this is my life. So you'll have to help me, Dalton, get better at that. Yeah, yeah.
2: We will. <laughs> well, if you like what you're hearing, and I can't imagine you would, but there you go, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, because we know that you have so many of them that you are throwing them into the pit that leads to the antimatter universe. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual era. Everything that I've just said is a lot because we're changing <laughs> the gift structure on patreon so you won't be getting a bbc book you'll be getting something fun hopefully we'll do something with that item
0: we're gonna put a chipmunk in a box and if you get it and it's alive fun if it's dead also a surprise no that's, that's a lie <laughs> i love animals i would never do that to any living creature i'm sorry
2: it may <laughs> still happen. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular Chipmunk receivers Bart Lammy, <laughs> Rick Taylor, Toby Dinglesdorf, Jay Berry, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Weck, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, and Guy Lambert. Thank you all. Thanks, thank y'all. You. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of the Tom Baker era with the second story of his second season, and a brand new season for us, with Terrence Dix novelization of The Planet of Evil. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Planet of Evil, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Louis Marx that aired from 9-27-75 to 10-18-75, published by Target Books in August 1977. As of this recording in November of 2020, this title is currently out of print, 126 pages. Dalton will likely remember the name Louis Marx because he's heard it twice before. Once under good circumstances, the other not (laughs) so good. Louis Marx is the writer responsible for Planet of Giants way back in the Hartnell era, and he didn't come back to the show until Day of the Daleks in the Pertwee era. This is his first script for the show in a good few years then, though he would contribute the opener for the next season, The of Dragora. We'll talk a lot more about his background when we get to that one, as that story is probably one that takes the most advantage of his particular skill set. That'll make sense later. And Jenny, just so you know, he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) So you're good. (laughs) Yes, now you may have noted some, shall we say, similarities between the story And not one but two classic science fiction stories, the first being the movie Forbidden Planet, and the second being the novel The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's entirely intentional on producer Phil Pinchcliffe's part. This entire season, except for the opening story, which, as we know, was held over from the previous season, is composed of stories based on classic sci-fi and horror movies.
0: That's interesting.
2: It is. Also, instead of the monster representing the id of the scientist as it does in Forbidden Planet, and by the way, spoiler alert, the monster in Forbidden Planet represents the id of the scientist, this monster is the id of an actual planet. Notably, this is only one of two stories based on two such stories, so it's rather amazing it all fits tightly into four episodes. What's even more amazing, if you ever watch the story itself, is the jungle set. It is amazing. Even though this entire story was shot in the studio, the production designers outdid themselves by creating such an impressive jungle set that the BBC kept photos of it for years afterwards as an example of great set design. It also helps that a lot of those sequences are shot on film rather than video, which makes the viewer versed in the whole video inside film, outside dynamic, think that they're actually in an alien jungle. In fact, uh, that is such a well-known dynamic that Monty Python did a sketch about it once, which is just <laughs> hilarious. Oh, wow. Yeah, in which they say, wait, we're on film. Why are we on film? It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> It's not the only good thing about this story, of course, but we will get there. All right, let's have a dramatic reading of our back cover, shall we? Jenny, since you are so rarely here, I'm going to volunteer you for this duty. (laughs) Duty. Uh, So if you could read the back cover for us.
0: Poop jokes coming up. No. um, All right. The expedition to Zeta Minor began with eight men. Seven were murdered. One survived, but he was not the murderer. Doctor Who lands on the planet at the same time as the expedition's rescue team and is immediately taken prisoner, the suspected murderer. But even stranger things soon begin to happen. What terrible creature inhabits this wild, desolate planet, killing mercilessly, lurking in the murky depths of the black pool? Will anyone ever be allowed to leave alive?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. I like that back cover better than the one that I have because I have the uh, reprint edition, which has a very different back cover blurb on it and has a much better cover because y'all have the version where the cover is just probably the worst thing about this book.
0: Yeah, I wrote, I don't even know what to make of this. There's these bubblegum pink meat vines. Yeah. And (laughs) there's like the unibrow and the... It's like some sort of guerrilla Gandalf situation, and then we have like randomly the art style of the Doctor, which looks totally different from the portrayal of I don't even know. And now that I think about it, who is he, this even supposed to be? It's not the the monster is like faceless darkness. What even is this? Now that I think of right. it, oh oh, this is um, probably Sorensen, but. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess I don't accept that.
2: Yeah, it's not acceptable because (laughs) my cover, and I wish I could show you, has this lovely image of, it's just Sorensen and those bubblegum pink vines that you're talking about, but it's against a black background. So it Hmm. works a lot better. It's a lot more um, evil looking, really, unlike the cover that y'all have. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I'm curious does the doctor look like this doctor on my cover at all like in real life
2: well let me look at my copy of the cover again because <laughs> I have to admit I haven't looked at it since I sent it to y'all let me look
1: It's uh, um, ish. oh god
2: no <laughs> <laughs> no that is in fact one of our Goodreads reviewers says that this is the absolute worst rendition of the Tom Baker doctor <laughs> ever <laughs> And he's absolutely right because it's just, that's horrific. Oh my God, that's just terrifying. Which one's the monster? <laughs> exactly right.
0: <laughs> is the profile picture that you've uploaded because we're hanging out on, on Zoom as we do this, is that supposed to be the doctor? Yep. Who that, this guy is? That
2: is the fourth doctor. Yep, that's the same guy. Oh, well. So you can see the I problem.
0: Mean, yeah, I just don't. Hmm. He definitely looks like he has this afro here.
2: <laughs> well, he does have that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah
2: but not quite to that extent, and not, yeah, that terrified look on his face. it's yeah, that's that's not no.
0: I also was just somehow like hand looks incorrect. He's running away as if he's pushing away something that he's afraid of, but he has put his arm kind of in front of his chest and it's reaching backwards across him but i actually was wait did they do that backwards but then i'm like no no you can do that i don't <laughs> think about it looks very awkward i i don't know it
1: looks really large especially the lower part of his palm down by his thumb <laughs> yeah. it's the, yeah. the foreshortening
2: is just really off yeah perspective is completely <laughs> off <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Like this chicken cutlet sort of thumb situation. I don't know.
2: (laughs) Well, I guess that tells us what your first impressions were of this, Jenny. But I'm going to ask the question anyway. What were your first impressions of this one?
0: When I looked up the author, because I I don't know why, I guess, again, I I started a long time ago because I might have been, I was one time being sassy and then I was like, oh, wait, this person might be dead and that's offensive. So I started... (laughs) I don't know why. I, I have always started looking at these people, who the authors are, before I, I look at them and when the book was released. And through that, I was like, oh, this person actually has written quite a bit of, of stuff. He's parents dicks, rather prolific. And I look back through all my notes. I don't think that I had read a book by Dix yet. Do you have some? I That's right. thought, you oh, okay. You know, maybe this is going to be good because this person actually has written a significant amount of things and is a writer in their own right. And I would say that that was an accurate statement that I don't know if I can necessarily rank it among the other ones, but it's definitely one of the better written books that I think I've read for Hmm. sure. There are several parts that I think demonstrate some writerly skill. I can get into those later later but definitely not a disappointment or like so many other ones where i was kind of pausing every other sentence to be like what the hell is going on <laughs> or this line is so ridiculous or you know the treatment of women was just garbage not not at all um very very pleased
2: well, i think you hit us at a good week because it has been noted that Terrence Dix isn't always that um, that great about treating the female characters properly. I think we oh. hit them uh, yeah. at a good time this time.
1: Well, uh, there's only the one female character in this
2: one, so... That's true. We're talking about, <laughs> You're we're talking about Sasha quests yes.
1: <laughs> no, but I, I, I'll agree. This, this is a better story from Terrence Dix than, than some of them that we've read.
2: Well, I think a lot of that might be because the original script is so much better than they usually are. Because Louis Marks, I mean, you can't really tell from Planet of Giants because, yeah, that was Allison's first book with us. And yeah, she's like, <laughs> oh, my God, I hope they're not all going to be like this. <laughs> it was it was pretty bad even terence Six had some difficulty adapting that one but day of the daleks was probably one of the better dalek stories we've read mm-hmm. and this one's pretty good so dix doesn't have to do a lot of cleaning up as it were after the original writer which he tends to have to do with these books for better or for worse so that's my first impression of it anyway so where do we start with this where do you want to start just start at the beginning yes
0: a very good place to start. Yeah.
1: yeah. I, I feel like th- this book starts off strong with the description of the planet kind of getting inside the head of the character who's Baldwin, right? Baldwin? I think so. I'm mixing up their names. They're not there long. Alec
2: Baldwin? Or... <laughs> oh, yeah. Baldwin. It is indeed Baldwin. So <laughs> however many thou- hundreds of thousands of years hence, we're still using names like Baldwin. Yeah. But we also have names like Lum.
1: Yeah, and the well, they are not even from Earth. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah but yeah, I, I think the description of the planet kind of get that foreboding feeling. Having him describe the freshly dug graves, you already know that bad stuff's going on.
2: Yeah, the planet was alive, and yes. it was a killer. It was a killer.
0: <laughs> I agree. I was right away. I my first thing that I wrote is like, oh, intro. Maybe this isn't going to be a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> like a terrible parent talking to their child oh maybe you're not going to disappoint me this time Johnny (laughs) yeah and right away too and I guess the third well I don't know technically fourth maybe paragraph where they starts with the prefabricated plastic survival dome something about that phrase just seemed so George Saundry commercial kind of to me that I was oh is this going to be a kind of thematic thing about modernity or civilization versus nature and have this kind of theme going on. And I don't think that that was really, like, very, I don't know, deliberately done, but it Mm -hmm. kind of was, you know, because it was about kind of the will of Sorensen and the will of, you know, him in terms of, oh, I have to have my people survive and his scientific hubris versus this planet and the limitations of physics or something. I don't know. It got a little muddled there in the end, but still, I was like, oh, no, I think that there is a theme set down here. And it actually is carried out. And I'm like, ah, themes, holy shit. Like, I was impressed.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's definitely a reflection of its time, isn't it? Because it's written at the height of the energy crisis. Or at least the book is. the, The original story also aired not too far from the energy crisis in 1975. So it was very much in the general ethos at the time. And you you get some of that because the Maristran Empire is running out of energy and they have to find some form of alternative energy and they decide to do the possible worst thing they could ever do, go to the planet that is furthest on the edge of the known universe, wherever that is, the boundary between our universe and antimatter and plumb that universe for its resources. It's like, oh.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things where you did wonder, like, why on earth would they have done this? It's kind of like when your grandma and grandpa drive all the way to the neighboring town to get the cheap gas because it was the cheapest. And you're like, you know, was this really that, like, useful?
2: True, but your your grandma and grandpa, when they did that, at least didn't come back as lifeless husks or, you know, more so than usual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like this thing does.
0: <laughs> R.I.P. love you. <laughs> yes. Now they would have thought this was all hilarious.
2: <laughs> yeah, the planet itself is very much a character in this book as it is in the story. And that definitely comes across. I mean, you don't really need the title to tell you it's a planet of evil. It's not so much a planet of evil. It just does some things that we would consider evil. That's That might be an interesting thing to discuss. Do we really think of this planet as evil or is it just misunderstood
1: yeah (laughs) it's just acting out a
0: a teenage emo phase yeah (laughs) yeah well if we're
2: talking about the id yeah
1: yeah i've been kind of referring to it as the anti-planet instead of the planet of evil because yeah it's not necessarily an, an evil planet it's just doing what it should do it wants to stay whole
2: Right. We should probably ignore the fact that if matter and antimatter did come into contact with each other, they would... Annihilate each other, so there should be explosions going on all over this book, but there <laughs> yeah. aren't.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like as soon as they touch down, it's just an explosion, and that's the end. <laughs> yes, okay, yeah. yeah, that's what
2: should have happened, but it doesn't.
0: <laughs> fine, we'll set that aside. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: Well,
1: yeah, Ign- ignore the science, right?
2: Yes, yeah, well, yeah, it works for the president. <laughs> I mean, He's not president anymore.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. he is for a couple months, but yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: well, that's fine.
1: But that's also like uh, the sun being a thousand light years away, and yet somehow they still have warmth oh, and I heat. Oh,
2: right? <laughs> so. Oh, my God. Yeah, you know, I noted that, and I was like, wait a minute. They say nothing like that on screen. So that's Terrence Dix, who really should know better. But. That's, that's fine.
0: Well, and it's yet another planet that whenever they land, they just go gallivanting out of the TARDIS. And I'm like, why are all these planets perfectly oxygenated
1: Right.
0: <laughs> you know, at the right temperature and all of these other things? And yet when they got the TARDIS into the spaceship, she like goes outside and there's no air. I thought that's accurate and yet odd that he would have bothered doing that on the Morstran or what, what is that word? The Morestran. Yeah, Morestran spaceship and not on the planet surface itself. That was... Do they to address
2: me. that? Because I always thought it was some sort of quarantine measure.
0: I think they said that, but I, I couldn't, um, I'd have to go back and find it, that it didn't come back later, whereas some other things do come back later, and I was grateful for.
2: Yeah, I'm not quite sure why they do because they do it on screen, too. And it's like, why? Why? <laughs> and it's especially funny on screen while you're looking for it, because on screen, they're just kind of standing up on a a raised platform above the area where the TARDIS has been materialized into. And there's obviously nothing keeping them. It's just open air between them and her. (laughs) So it's like, okay. That's Mm. random. Yeah. Yeah. It's British actors acting when there's nothing in the set to actually support what they're supposedly trying to show is happening. (laughs) And yet they sell it.
0: Yeah, I guess that's just... They're in some sort of bare metal walled enclosure with a viewing window set high on one wall. And then the scientific officer, Morley, says we've scanned it thoroughly on the interior, blah 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 blah. Photonic analysis of the exterior indicates something else. That's kind of all they said. Yeah. And then they are they let it open and Sarah comes out and then she's like, I can't breathe. And they're like, yeah. oh shit. <laughs> And yeah, an oxygen breather like ourselves. Which, wait, wait a minute. Didn't they know them on the planet? Or no, had no. they not seen them on the planet? Mm-hmm. Okay, never mind. Transfer oxygen to quarantine area. Yeah, okay, so I guess they do call it the quarantine area, but they don't say much about why.
2: Right. And it's the second story in a row where poor Sarah is gasping for air. <laughs> <laughs> Seem to like to go back to that particular pump every once in a water. I know, maybe
0: somebody has a kink? I don't know. <laughs> and, uh...
2: <laughs> well, there's certainly enough of them in Doctor Who, so I wouldn't be surprised. Ah, uh, yeah, it's an amazing opening, even by Terrence Dix's standards, because he tends to do openings really well, but I'm getting the impression from both of you that you liked what followed just as much as you did the opening. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe it's just Jenny. I'm getting that impression. No,
1: I parts of the story just don't do things for me.
2: Okay,
0: <laughs> they're not at my beck and call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do things.
1: Yeah, yeah. They're not texting me back, and it makes me mad. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> no,
1: I just like the the idea of Sorenson becoming the anti-man. Mm-hmm. Like we said, if anti and it well, it's even stated the doctor even says if if antimatter and matter uh, come into contact, they react, and mm-hmm. he, he calls it radiation annihilation. Yeah, the idea that antimatter could bond with a human and cause a regression in his yeah. evolutionary status. I was just like,
2: what? It, it could have been anything but antimatter, and we probably could have accepted it.
1: Battle. Yes, I think that, like always, it's like, ignore the science a little bit and and don't focus so much on it and you don't ruin the story for yourself.
2: Yeah, I'd <laughs> almost say that Louis Marx was going for a Star Trek thing, except I don't remember in the original series if they actually did refer to the propulsion being powered by antimatter as they do now, but eh, I don't know. But it is weird.
0: It was definitely like a, oh, we've gotten through our main... Narrative conflict. But then there's more. And I'm like, okay, so, you know, you have the monster on the planet. You see the planet as evil. We've gotten away from the planet, hence source of conflict. Fine, conflict resolved. Oh, now we're going to take the monster and put him in the ship. And we're going to have the doctor... Be the monster when, again, scientific. I have to actually go back and and understand what the the whole id thing means. Can you teach me? What is id? (laughs) Oh, God.
2: (laughs) You would ask me that. (laughs) And the problem is I'm not even all that sure myself because I didn't really take basic psychology. But tell you what, I am going to do what all of my students do. I'm going to look it up on Wikipedia and I'm going to tell you then. The thing is, in the story, they never refer to it as, as id, And the only reason I'm saying that is because the one of the two works that this is based on, which is Forbidden Planet, the monster very definitely is the id. So it's created out of this guy's psychology and his hatred and his jealousy of the astronauts who are coming to take his daughter away. And in this case... That's not what's happening. Uh, The id, ego, and superego, three concepts of psychoanalytic theory. In the ego psychology model of the psyche, the id is the set of uncoordinated instinctual desires. Superego plays the critical and moralizing role, and the ego is the organized realistic agent that mediates between the instinctual desires of the id and the critical superego. So, it's basically mind, instinct, and some sort of mediator between the two that allows them to work together. Yeah, okay. Primal yeah. urges. Exactly, exactly right. And in Forbidden Planet, and this is going to give away the plot, you and I should watch this, Jenny. And come to think of it, Dalton, you've seen it, haven't you? I don't think so. Really? Okay, we'll watch it on one of our movie nights then, because holy shit. Well, it is amazing on so many levels. For one thing, it's a direct influence for Star Trek. Oh. It has an amazing, weird electronic soundtrack that isn't music at all, but somehow it works beautifully. The id monster is animated by Disney. Mm. And it has... Leslie Nielsen, a very young, very handsome Leslie Nielsen, is the main character. What? Yes, in doing a dramatic role. Sorensen? No. Or Vishinsky <laughs> no, or whatever. No, no, neither. Uh, in Forbidden Planet, it's he's the captain of the ship.
0: Monsters from the id, huh? Monsters from the subconscious. Of course, that's what Doc meant. Marbius. The big machine, 8,000 cubic miles of Kleistron relays, enough power for a whole population of creative geniuses, operated by remote control. Morbius, operated by the electromagnetic impulses of individual Krell brains. To what purpose? In return, that ultimate machine would instantaneously project solid matter to any point on the planet, in any shape or color they might imagine, for any purpose, Morbius.
2: Mm. Oh, yeah, it's a very different story than this. But you can see that it's influenced by, but not directly the same. And if we trace that influence back, Forbidden Planet is actually based on Shakespeare's The Tempest. Yeah, huh. yeah this is obviously not The Tempest.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the extent of my knowledge of Forbidden Planet is it, it being a reference for a lyric in Rocky Horror. So.
2: Yes, indeed.
0: I'm afraid it's one of the things that I have not seen. Okay. Um, but I, I know of it. And it's not, it is not as if I have not seen, a, you know, a lot of films and things of the era. Just not that one yet. We
2: should absolutely do a movie night and watch it because it is amazing. And as soon as you watch it, you'll be like, oh, <laughs> that's sort of thing Planet planned of evil from, except not so much.
0: <laughs> and this is kind of what I was understanding it to be. Although I guess Sorensen's animal, whatever impulses would be then to like, attack other people and let him take the mineral off of the planet so that it could save his people, because that was what he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. So I I guess in that sense it makes sense. But I think, yeah, I think I was expecting there to be something a little bit more about it instead of just like, ah, the monster's on the ship now. And Yeah. 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 They're definitely like I think some of the themes got a little muddled towards the end and Like, for the love of God, I feel like this happens so often in Doctor Who stories. It's like middle manager spacemen fighting about shit, and I just couldn't give a shit less. I'm like, can you... I just don't care who's the commander or not the commander. I don't care what some messenger has been cheeky. Like, this isn't interesting and it's taking up so many pages of the plot and and i I can think of this iteration in other stories except it's in the medieval ages and it's some saucy page or (laughs) there's just so many times that this happens and i'm like why why is there why is this happening it just wasn't very interesting i
2: think i may have an answer to that because this is something that's going to come up in uh, louis marx's next script which is set in renaissance italy because he got his phd in renaissance italian studies and the sort of clash for power is something that come to think of it, oh my god it's in every single louis marx script hmm. you have at least two characters that are fighting for dominance over control of something it's in Planet of Giants, though it's ugh, it's not very well done in Planet of Giants, mm-hmm. you have it in Day of the Daleks where you have the um, human Quisling who's working for the Daleks, but he actually wants to overthrow them. And then you have this, and you definitely have that power struggle on Masculine Dragoros. So I think that middle management spaceman arguing about shit That's a good characterization of what the heart of the story is, but it's not the whole thing. And I think you're right. It gets muddled. And I suspect why it gets muddled is it tries to graft Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde onto it.
1: Hmm.
2: And I'm wondering, how do you feel? I mean, Jenny, you said that you were getting kind of bored with it when you thought that's all that the story was going to be about. How did you feel when we finally did get to the Dr. Jekyll plot? With and changing into Anti-Man.
0: Yeah, again, I was kind of like, oh, okay, like, yeah, I guess this makes sense, but I wasn't too convinced by it. I feel like because there was that particular scene where either the Doctor or they've already established that the antimatter is what's preventing the spaceship from continuing on, and they got to dump it. Mm-hmm. And Salomar is like, hey, Doctor, we're fucking doing this, so be chill. And then he's like, okay, like he he like says that he fights for a second, and then he's kind of defeated, and I'm like, what? How is he giving up so easily? Like, he needs to fight. I would have almost expected it more. If right in that moment, he had, you know, really gone a little crazy. Like, I like how Dix already says, because at points they're talking to Sorensen, and the prose makes a point, or the different characters make a point of saying that he was supernaturally calm, that he seemed like he was repressing his feelings about all of his co-crew members dying, and then he... Let's go of some emotion at some point and it's like, oh, okay, so he is traumatized. Like, that makes sense. But it would have been nice maybe in that moment to see him really go kind of crazy, mm-hmm. fighting with people and screaming or whatever. And that would have, I think, set him up really well to suddenly start with the red eyes and the transformation back in his cabin or something so we can see that his becoming this beast is not only a antimatter thing but directly correlated to this emotional crisis that he's reached inside of himself instead of just like this random like well when the furnace turns on i become the monster and (laughs) when it's off i guess i'm fine and also i like how he's like oh he made this serum so i thought i'd be fine and i'm like you made one bottle like what did you think was gonna happen
2: Oh, I have a story well about that. <laughs> because in the TV version, they don't really explain what that serum is. Oh. That's, that's an improvement in the Dick's version of this, that he <laughs> actually it. explains what it is and why he's drinking this potion, like Dr. Jekyll does. And in the book, it's explained that this is something, because Sorensen already knows that he is infected with the antimatter and he's trying to suppress it with this potion, which he's only made one bottle of, on screen. It just looks like he's going for a flask of coffee (laughs) because it steams when he pours it out of the thermos that it's in. It's actually in a space-age thermos. And at the end, when he spills it and that's the end of it, it's like, oh, he's out of coffee. They really need to stop by space Starbucks and get him some more if that's what's keeping him. I know what it's like. You have to keep yourself caffeinated in order to keep those demons away. (laughs) But usually release is mine. (laughs) Yeah, it's 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 odd that isn't it? Because in the story, even that just comes up out of nowhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Dalton, you said that a few other things weren't working for you in the story. What what else didn't work? Like Jenny was saying
1: about the the middle middle management uh, uh, trope, yeah, this this kind of idea of this young person being connected and so getting ahead that way and and setting up that kind of relationship between Salomar and uh, Vishinsky immediately. It was just like again, really, um, <laughs> I did enjoy the fact that it wasn't the old fogey that was the one that was keeping everything from happening you know for once the old guard guy was the one that was thinking clearer about things but yeah that that kind of was just like eh, again why okay whatever we're going here
2: conflict that's essentially it which is fine
1: uh, it flattened things for me a little
2: bit. I think you do have to have that, if only because if Vishinsky were the one in charge of the ship from the beginning, then he would be more likely to listen to that first Sorensen, but then the Doctor. And you'd have almost half the story be- gone because of that, because yeah. it's all about Salomar being just this young hothead who doesn't know what he's doing. And you do get an interesting little... Arc with him because by the end he's gone kind of completely nuts, and that's mm-hmm. when he ends up killing himself and making things worse by causing Sorensen to split off into different Anti Men. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's kind of this question of, like, why does this have to be here? Is this really necessary to the story? And I don't know, I could be wrong. I might need to just think about it a little bit more, but okay, I can see in and of itself that the grasp for power um, being a kind of interesting idea. But maybe if it were somehow related to Sorensen's seeking to have agency over the planet, if somehow Salamar also was trying to seek some sort of agency, well, maybe he is, maybe he is. Okay, hold on, because he's supposed They there's this great paragraph when they were introduced. Let's see if I can find that. Yeah, here we go. And this actually happens twice. This is something that I was going to praise this book and and dicks for was this is probably a pretty old school tool, but I like how it worked here and I think it was really effective. Introducing characters by contrast. Um, we have this one little paragraph that is like, oh, in the command chair sat controller, solinar. It's LMR, solinar. Solomar, solinar Sometimes mm-hmm. my Okay, young, fair-haired, very conscious of his rank, a handsome figure in the ornate uniform of the Moristran space service. In the number two seat on his left was... Vyshinsky, Vyshinsky. Yeah, Vyshinsky. Vyshinsky. a very different figure, taller, older, with thinning hair and a tough, weary face... Vishinsky was a hardened professional with over 30 years' service behind him, unlike Salomar, who had reached command rank very young. Vishinsky had no highly placed friends in politics to push forward his promotion, so it was Salomar who sat in the command chair and wore the gold braid. But the space service put Vishinsky beside him, just to be sure. Now, that's six sentences, and that does a lot of work to explain who these two people are. And it's by contrast that it helps us fill in those blanks. It would be totally different if there was just one paragraph being like, well, first, this, there's this Salomar guy. Also, we have Vishinsky." <laughs> <laughs> but because it contrasts them, it really helps to define the two characters and help us remember who they are. That happened earlier with Baldwin and Sorensen as well. Oh, and I was like, mm-hmm. oh, that's a really great technique that Dix is using. And I guess if we thought about it in the sense that Vyshynski is representing kind of the the old school way of being a commander through experience through professionalism versus the new way of being a commander when you go to school for it and stuff like that, (laughs) then maybe we could see some sort of parallel between nature and modernity or something. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't know, though. It's kind of loose. So I think because of that, it feels like two separate conflicts that don't have a reason to engage with each other, which does make it feel sort of happenstance.
2: Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Especially because on screen you can absolutely see the difference between the two characters in the way they act and the way they carry each other. Because Prentice Hancock playing Salomar is very shouty and Vishinsky is not. And you've got that absolute difference between the two of them. And Dick's as we know, tends to work with the scripts. He's not looking at the videotape. He's looking at the shooting script. And he's picking up on that. And it it definitely is a tribute to Dix that he's able to pull that out of the script. And it's also a tribute to Louis Marx that he's put it in there. But you're right. You do wonder at times why certain elements are there apart from... Just the producer's brief. Hey, we want to do a story that has elements of Forbidden Planet and we want Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as well, which is a tricky mix. (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) A tricky mix to pull off, but it kind of works a bit. I don't know. So those are the things that don't seem to work for us. How about the things that did?
0: There was a lot of writing in here that I just thought was effective good plotting or good characterization of the characters by contrast the the part where a baldwin checks his his chronometer which i was like <laughs> why, why on fucking earth wouldn't you just call it a watch um but then um it's a wind up you know,
1: science or... <laughs> it needs to sound sciencey. i know
0: i was like it's a, si- it's a a wind-up watch and you're gonna give it this fancy pants name okay whatever <laughs> So he, he checks his watch and I'm like, that's weird and awkward. But then five seconds later, when he's desiccated, um, the doctor comes in and then is able to see his watch and knows that the death was recent and not from a long time ago. And I was like, oh, OK, I, I see you, dicks. Mm-hmm. I know what you're up to here. <laughs> and that happened again with the whole funeral of one of the crew members where they put him in that little chute to just fly him out into space like a like a turd. <laughs> and- <laughs> I was like, why are they making this big point of like this funeral? And then I was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is foreshadowing. As soon as they, the doctor and Sarah are brought into the room later on and they mention the, the shoot or whatever, I'm like, oh, no, they're going to put him in the chute and chuck him out in his space. So I think that sometimes the tensions were set up well. I thought that was nice.
2: So lots of Chekhovian guns, right? Yeah. Lots of Chekhov's guns going on. Ah, uh, yes,
0: yes. I really like the relationship between sarah and the doctor in this i've seen so many different kinds of doctors it seems sometimes the doctor is really cruel and snooty like he doesn't (laughs) seem to give a shit about his companions and whatever and this is a very different doctor he talks to sarah kind of like an equal she can go off and do brave things and and just lets her do it he's not worried about her um there's a cute part where they were crawling in the jungle and Sarah was holding onto his scarf to like keep a track of him. I thought that was a sweet image. They speak Shakespeare to each other. Oh, yes. like, <laughs> there's a lot of kind of just signs of intimacy between these two people um, that I think are very lovely. I was lucky.
2: Fortunately, time is on our side. Time? Yes. Ice
0: candles are burned out, hmm? and Jock and Day stands tiptoe on the misty mountain top something like that oh you mean it's getting light that's what shakespeare meant doesn't it like daylight that is the question and there's some times where she's worried about him or he goes off and they like hold hands for a second just a nice moment of tenderness that was nice i think my favorite part we talk about favorite things maybe i'm jumping the gun but is this whole thing about if you're a scientist you have the privilege to experiment but then total responsibility and I thought that that was interesting because I feel like oftentimes the doctors do not have total responsibility. They just (laughs) kind of fly around and do whatever the fuck they want. And they're supposed to have laws and and ethics. But oftentimes I have not seen that. (laughs) But I like that this doctor kind of got there. And, you know, that's very much upheld in the story because they're just flying through space back to London or whatever. And then the doctor's like, oh, no, there's a distress signal. We have to help. And Sarah's kind of like, do we? And (laughs) the doctor's (laughs) like, yeah, we do. And he, you know, really continues to put himself into danger, you know, going so far as to take a dive into this antimatter pool in order to do so. So that was, was kind of a neat thematic thing to come up to. Yeah, I think there were lots of things to, to like about this.
2: Mm-hmm. Dalton, how do you feel about how Sarah is developing as a companion? I
1: agree with Jenny about the relationship of the Doctor and Sarah feeling very tender. And feeling close and feeling like he does trust her and he really lets her help in the ways that she is able to. Yeah, I feel like she she's really coming into her own. And I actually had um, whenever uh, Salomar is uh, going to interrogate Sarah and there's a line that says the alien, although young and female, seemed tougher than she looked. She spoke up for herself spiritedly, and seemed unimpressed by threats and attempts to frighten her. And I, I just I love that because yeah it really shows that she's not a stone cold bitch but <laughs> she she can hold her own and it really shows that she's gained some strength and she's she's always had strength but she feels more alive I guess
2: yeah and she's also given some unusual characteristics in the story for instance she's able to sense the presence of the creature mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah. that, again, is a Chekhov's gun because she's able to do it twice on the planet. And then later, when Sorensen is turning in front of her, she can feel that, oh, I, I felt the creature here when I was with Sorensen. So that sets that up very nicely. She's never going to have anything like that again. It's really nice to give that sort of thing to the companion. To give the companion more agency in the story, because otherwise she would have the usual damsel in distress stuff going. But not even that. She, apart from being strapped into the tubes and almost shot into space, she really isn't put directly in peril as much in the story as she has been in previous
1: ones. And that also, uh, just now thought about this, since we're talking about the id, that kind of plays into this idea of instinct, and and primal urges and things like that, she just instinctually felt that the evil was around.
2: Yeah, and probably the reason why she's able to do it is because, well, I don't know, you could say that the Marestrins have kind of lost that ability to sense anything because they're so far removed from her own time, but Mm -hmm. maybe there is something to that. And the fact that we get some of her interior thoughts a lot more in this book, such as that l- weird little bit of xenophobia she has oh, in God. chapter two <laughs> yes when she says it's easier to know the good people from the bad when they're humanoid <laughs> didn't exactly help her out on Scaro, did it when she was on the planet of the daleks because everybody humanoid there was evil yeah at <laughs> least
1: they've got hands instead of tentacles it's like
2: <laughs> what yes exactly it's just so bizarre <laughs>
0: There's a part where the doctor's like, well, I'm going to say here, here, have my key to the TARDIS and you can go back there and do that. And I was like, wait, what? I feel like there was another Doctor Who story I read where the doctor and his key to the TARDIS was like his prized possession. He wasn't going to give that to anybody. And I was like, oh, he just gave it to her. And then she went off into the jungle with a pickaxe or something yeah. to, like, defend herself. <laughs> I was like, oh, I've, she must really trust her warrior skills. You know, that's that's nice. <laughs> because I, I too, Dalton noticed that line for a girl, blah, 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 that I'm like, I can tell that this is him speaking. This is Salomar saying she was quite tough for a, a female whatever, because... That kind of sentiment has not been applied to this character by the narration throughout the entirety. She's just been able to go around and do whatever. They didn't say, although she was a weak uterus holding flesh sack, um, she sallied forth with her pickaxe of feminism, you know, it didn't like the the narrative never had to say that she just did it. So in that moment, it definitely stuck out because I was like, ah, it's very clear that this is Salomar's attitudes about women in his culture. So and that the, the, the narration in Dix does not have that opinion, at least in this book, which I thought was, was nice. Yeah. Yeah. Not
2: this time. I, no. That has not always been the case, unfortunately. <laughs> <No. except>
0: <laughs> Living the... in ignorance. It's fine. Yes, yeah, it's exactly.
1: okay. Well, we're, Yeah, we're talking about this book. And in this book, that's the case. Speaking about the the bit with the key to the TARDIS, he talks about making a telepathic adjustment. Is that something that ever comes up again? Oh, did it say? Yeah. He took the TARDIS key from around his neck and held it for a moment, making the telepathic adjustment that would allow Sarah to use it. He's handed it to her. Sure. You can find the way. That's
2: interesting. I don't know why I would miss something like that, because I'm always looking for stuff like that, but... Yeah, you don't see that sort of pause on screen at all. No. And this is the only time I... In all the books we have read, that's the first time that I've seen that. Now, we've heard that only the Doctor and and Susan could get into the TARDIS because of, you know, weird locking mechanism or whatever. That never stopped any other companions from getting in if they had the key.
1: Yeah, I can remember from any of the new series, it's just like, here, here's the key, go.
2: Yeah, yeah, the Ninth Doctor gives Rose a key. Yeah. And she's able to come and go as she pleases. It's just like a key to a house. But I'm not quite sure why Dix does it there rather than any any place else. But I also don't remember the instance recently where the Doctor has given a companion Mm-mm. the key to the TARDIS in quite a while. Yeah. So I think you're right, Jenny. That's exactly, yeah, that shows the level of trust there that he's willing to say, oh, yeah, she can have it.
0: Maybe you can shed some light on this other behavior the Doctor does that this was much later the doctor tapped oh. Salomar neatly under his chin <laughs> and he just like goes to sleep
1: yes like
0: yeah. is this a thing that the doc the doctors do that's interesting
1: well uh, did he
2: punch him yeah that's what that's how i did, that's how i took it he punched him he
0: oh <laughs> yes
2: yeah that's that's dick's trying to minimize the violence for the kiddies. i think <laughs> i
0: thought like, literally, he's doing, you know, like some sort of Vulcan three-point exploding heart damage Well, technique. he does, like, no.
2: he does, he does He'll frequently do that
1: later. use Venusian
2: Aikido, but, uh, yeah. But not this
0: doctor. Yeah, yeah not, not this doctor,
1: doctor. no. And, oh, okay, okay. The Tom
2: Baker doctor is very much a doctor of fisticuffs later on. <laughs> uh, and that's one of them. He does actually punch Salomar, if I remember correctly.
0: Because there's this other part in the book where they're looking at of trying to get back in the TARDIS and the doctor is like, oh, now Sarah, then if you distract the guard by the ramp, I can slip up behind him and put him gently to sleep. I'm like, what the fuck does (laughs) that mean? Like, what are you going to do? Like, what is this? But we never got to see what it was. So later on, when he did the tapping on the chin, I was like, oh, that must mean what this is. He has like some sort of magic trick where you touch somebody's chin and you fall asleep. I don't know. (laughs) No,
1: He's
2: not afraid to get physical.
0: (laughs) Just good old fashioned ultraviolence. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> all right
2: i think it depends mostly on the physicality of the doctor at a given time tom baker is just as physical as john pertley actually more so whereas later you will have a doctor who kind of just will tap someone lightly on the forehead and put them to sleep but that's because he's you know kind of slight of figure by that point
0: yeah i feel like we went through we already went through negative things but i'm looking at my notes and i was coming up with a couple more things that i thought oh were sure funny. please um at some point there's a mention of batteries batteries were running out and i was like we're in the future with spaceships but we have some duracell in our <laughs> our devices i just thought that that was was odd right um, oh there was the line about the tardis being wrapped up like a supermarket yes. chicken <laughs> <Yes>.
2: <laughs> <laughs> i adore that, that.
0: <laughs> probably and you know i really sat there and i thought about it and i was like okay you know like this is Perhaps speaking to the audience of of earth dwellers, you know, of the 1970s, or even in this particular scene, maybe there's a bit of Sarah's voice infusing this, and she is an Earthling from you know Britain. So mm-hmm. we can think of something as as earthly as a supermarket chicken speaking as an effective metaphor to the reader. Right. But it just seems so weird, considering (laughs) where we are in the rest of the book. Exactly. Um, I'm glad that you all thought that that was funny, too. Oh,
2: very much so. Unfortunately, Dix does get rid of one of the funnier bits. It's when they're sending Morelli out in space, in his burial in space, and Vyshinsky's being told that Morelli is Moresstran Orthodox. Yeah. Yeah. And his response on screen is... One of those. <laughs> That's just a lovely bit of... We, we know we know that this future civilization has its own little foibles and prejudices and all that. We're never going to be told what they are, but we know that they have them. And it's a very humanizing bit, but it seems to be gone.
0: I did see that like as well, and that was actually something I thought was really funny. It was like, why bother talking about this person's religion, but... Um, maybe that's a a relic of that.
2: It it is preserved when he says that he's going to turn down the pre-recorded last rites and says, well, we have to do it. Doesn't mean we have to listen to them.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I don't know why there's a person who is randomly Indian named Um. Ranjit. I was like, what? Happening. Yeah. why that was Diversity. Random. Uh, with his lovely <laughs> lilting voice and yeah. finally I think this is like the for some reason the thing that made me laugh the most that the monster is here it has sucked up somebody the crackling grew louder and there was a strangely horrible plop and the withered body of the <laughs> guard dropped out of the nothingness onto the ground and I'm like you know when we're talking about the sound that like a desiccated husk of someone would make on the ground I don't normally think plop which is like you know, like a wet sound, like Even a...
2: sound of a turd <laughs> hitting the floor.
0: Yeah, exactly. A turd now coming up for the second oh. time in this podcast. I'm um, subscribed <laughs> for turds. <laughs>
1: It's kind of what it's doing to them, though. It's, it's Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: The, okay, yeah, that's true. That's true. I just thought it was funny with a horrible plop. No, it's... <laughs> And pretty, like, you know, irreverent for that person who just died. Yeah. If I die, I don't want anyone to describe the sound of my body hitting the ground with the word plop. It's just, <laughs> you know, offensive. This would be like talking about, spoiler, like, in Cowboy Bebop, Julia's body falling to the ground among the birds. And then it's like, plop! Yes. Like, <laughs> not, not the onomatopoeia that we would choose for that situation. Yeah, um,
2: certainly not. But uh,
0: but see, like other than that, this this was pretty clean. There weren't too many things, maybe except for that chicken line that I thought were (laughs) so off, whereas usually that's happening like every other line in some of these other books that they're just not well written. But this one I thought was very well written.
2: I'm glad you actually brought up the Ranjit thing, though, because (laughs) that's where Dix is kind of improving it a bit. In fact, one of our Goodreads discussion reviews actually talks about that and the fact that... uh, the original intent was to have more diversity amongst the crew, which is why Ponty is actually black. Mm. I'll give Dix this. This is an improvement. I'm sure if Allison were here, she would point this out. <laughs> it's much better to have Ponty described as, I think they refer to him as a dark man, dark young man, rather oh. than, you know, big black which is what Dix has done previously, yeah. or will do later, I should Numerous
1: say. Numerous times, yeah.
2: Chronologically, that's going to come later, but yeah. You know, they were supposed to be a more diverse crew, which is why you get names like Dahan and Vishinsky and all that, but the problem is this. Ranjit doesn't appear on screen, so they have one of the other actors do this horrible, stereotypical oh, Indian oh, accent God. because he's a voiceover, so there's that. Luckily, that's kind of lost. On the page, though, it's apparently still coming through. And Prentice Hancock said that when they originally approached him about playing Salomar, they said that he might be doing it in Yellowface. Mm. Yeah, which is unfortunate because it doesn't happen this season. It does happen in the next season where they do indeed get a good actor to play a character in Yellowface. And that's going to be something we'll have to talk about when we get there, because holy shit. (laughs) yeah that ends up being a shit show but apart from that yeah this book holds together pretty well despite the fact that it has so many weird flaws in the story anything else we want to say about this one
1: i particularly like the passage about when the doctor goes into the black pool I think that Terrence Six really gets the feeling of kind of floating in this void space. And particularly the line that he says, he floated to the top of a long shimmering vortex, a kind of whirlpool in reverse. And I just like that image.
2: Yeah. You don't get that image on screen. It's just Tom Baker on film on a black background. I think he's on Kirby wires, but I'm not sure. So Mm -hmm. he's doing the whole Peter Pan thing. Yeah. (laughs) and then they have the monster which actually is a quite impressive effect on screen it's surprising how good that effect is and how effective it is yeah
0: you know in the narrative they allude to a conversation that the doctor has with the monster do they show that conversation on screen No. no no i wish that they had in the book you know it's sad since we had this huge build-up and this ominous pool that seems everyone else who goes in there just dies. But the doctor, you know, maybe we can actually rely on him to live. And that would give us a privileged look into what is actually inside of here and into what it looks like to have a conversation with this crazy interdimensional being like that would be awesome. So the fact that we didn't get a lot of that was a little disappointing to me. I
2: think it might lose something if you did that, though, because you lose something of the mystery of this planet being an entity and not knowing the nature of what this creature is, and having it cut away just at the moment when the Doctor's starting to communicate with it. You don't actually see him start to communicate with it at all. It's just there in the blackness with him in a very terrifying moment. And then the next thing we see, Sarah's trying to pull him out of the black pool. Mm. And there's something really quite interesting about that. The communication has been completely nonverbal that this agreement that he's made with the planet has been made non-verbally. And the fact that it's almost like those rocks that you can't take off of certain Hawaiian volcanoes without a shit show of bad luck coming down upon you. Uh Yeah. Yeah, It's got that feel to it. And I kind of wish they would stuck with that rather than grafting the Jekyll and Hyde thing on.
1: Yeah, because that even kind of plays into the whole id thing. The doctor is able to communicate non-verbally his intention and his instinct and the type of person that he is.
2: Yeah, and he gives us where behind, that. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I feel like the thing that bugs me the most is that. The idea of the evil, the idea of the creature, this crackling creature, gets totally ruined by the idea of the Dr. Jekyll thing. Yeah. I feel like it would have been stronger if it would have just been these, you know, Geiger counter crackly creatures coming after the ship. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: Or we could have somehow made a differentiation that and the doctor attempts to do it for a second when he's like, well, maybe this monster doesn't know that it it is, you know, consuming and accidentally killing these people. Maybe it doesn't have a concept of that. And that felt very Star Trek to me because in a number of episodes of Star Trek, some thing is causing massive havoc on the ship Mm -hmm. and then finally they're able to communicate with it and they're like hey stop and it's like oh okay sorry about that bye (laughs) and it wasn't even a thing so there is a moment of plausible deniability for the planet that i think the doctor says so if there are a way to like separate that to say oh like the planet was just trying to defend itself it didn't know you know really that it was kind of doing this but then when we have sorenson trying to impose his Kind of selfless agenda and agency onto the planet, that is what makes him evil. Mm -hmm. That, like, the planet's not evil, but Sorensen is evil because of that
2: gesture. Maybe that would have worked. That is interesting because if you make it all about Sorensen's id, then it becomes. It's still the same story that it is, but you don't necessarily need the Jekyll and Hyde bit. You actually go back to the original movie Forbidden Planet wherein uh, Morbius' id is traveling without him realizing that it's happening. And it does take on the form of his id and take on all of those instincts without it necessarily being him. They could have gone that route, but I think it would have been maybe a little harder to achieve. And probably Philip Hinchcliffe said, we really want that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde element in there with that coffee coming in yeah. every <laughs> once in a while. Yeah, it's odd that they do that. Do you notice, though, Something very interesting happens towards the end, that Sorensen gets this moment of grace because he's reprieved. The doctor Mm. tosses him into the black pool and he comes back out unscathed and completely healed of his infestation or infection or whatever it is. And that's something that the producer wanted. In the original, in Louis Marx's script, he dies and the producer said that's a little too much for the little kids (laughs) like the rest wasn't (laughs) the desiccated corpses weren't too much for the (laughs) little kids but Sorensen being thrown into a black pool and dying yeah that's too much shouldn't Sorensen be blamed for all the deaths because it seems like the very last line of this book should be and none of the horrible deaths were ever mentioned again yeah <laughs>
0: yeah yeah that's a good point i didn't think about what it meant for sorenson to be redeemed at the end i guess i was kind of like well that's nice but we could read a lot of things about that we could be like well hey here is this guy literally plundering this planet and pissing the planet off. And then the planet was still like, yeah, okay, I'll let you go. Like that's pretty big of it.
2: Yeah, it is. And well, I read it this way by returning Sorensen to the planet and purging the antimatter from his body. They've returned all of the antimatter that belonged to the planet. And that makes some sense to me actually, because you've got that little thing about the doctor having it in his uh, tin of mints or whatever it was. And forgetting that he had it, which is just strange, because he should tell them, yeah, I've got some in this tin here, and we should probably get rid of it. But the fact that it's in Sorensen's body to the extent that it also needs to be returned, that that makes a bit more sense. And that Dix actually gives us something of an epilogue, and lets us know, yep, this is, uh, Sorensen goes back, he figures it out, he becomes well-lauded by his people, the Mrestrians are saved... And none of the horrible deaths that he's actually responsible for are ever mentioned. But that's fine because he saved his people.
0: Yeah, that ending was maybe a little bit pat for me. I was like, okay. Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. it's
1: not on but. screen. Yeah, and, and him him being able to take credit for the doctor breaking the, the rules of the Time <laughs> Lords.
2: Yeah! Yes! Well, as I said in my note, with all the side missions they've been sending him on lately, they kind of owe him this one, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs)
0: Well, and I guess it was for a good reason. It's not like the guy was doing this just to get rich and famous or something. He, like, wanted to save his people. So I guess in that case, like, it's okay.
2: I guess. I mean, he he can't make omelets without breaking a few eggs.
0: I did still think about that. I I definitely thought about it. I was like, what? Doesn't this kind of break some sort of law? Whatever. Just a bit.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, shall we go to Goodreads?
0: let's shall
2: let's do what we did as we always do let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings by the way if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it simply read the book write a comment or review in our goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves you may get your review read out loud here The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.44. The reviewers from our Goodreads group have, again, been edited for length. Sorry, guys, (laughs) but definitely keep them coming. Our Patreon, Dave Davis, gives it two stars and says, and this is the story I wanted to tell you. On the DVD commentary, Philip Hinchcliffe mentioned that director David Maloney was keen to make the Maestran crew multi-ethnic. This worthy intention was undermined somewhat by Prentice Hancock's revelation that he would have, if it had worked as planned, worn makeup to make him look Oriental. There'll be more about Yellowface in a later story. Yeah, boy, howdy. In the end, there were only two non-white characters, Ponty played by Louis Mahoney, who had played a new uh, newscaster in Frontier in Space. Oh, it is the same actor. And who would later play an older version of Billy Shipton and Blink? That's right! He's in the new series! Hmm. He's the old guy who you know, she meets he, him. Yes! That's him. That's the actor. Oh, great! plays <laughs> Ponty. Yeah, oh my god, that is him. And okay. Ranjit, played by Michael Wisher, who did the Daleks and did Davros. Ranjit isn't seen on screen, only heard so there's no need for Wisher to black up, thank god. Yeah. In the book, we lose any vestige of multi-ethnicity aside from Ranjit, whose role is expanded a little just in time for him to be killed. Ponty is described as dark, but in such an offhanded way that it might easily be his hair color, which may be a good thing. It might be my white privilege speaking, but I quite like it when characters are non-white without any need to be from a story vantage. Ponte happens to be black, and nobody cares. One of the changes from the TV version was the transportation of the TARDIS to the Maurestran ship instead of the Trident, tested fiddling about with and attaching props to ready the TARDIS for Transpat. Terrence Dix had the Maurestran spray it with plastic. Yes, the last time the TARDIS was similarly sealed by plants inspired on, the doctor nearly suffocated. This time, Sarah, alone in the TARDIS, didn't notice a problem. Uncle Terry missed a trick there. It was a perfect setup for Sarah to faint. Because Dave has been noting every time that Dix has made Sarah faint. It didn't happen this time. (laughs) It's too frequently. (laughs) Yes, all in all, this book was okay. It loses more than it gains compared to the TV version. It's not terrible. But I did find my attention straying at times so that I would get to the end of the page with no idea what I just read. I didn't think that was possible. I don't even know if Sarah fainted. <laughs> 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 yes. A reviewer named Dodo, it's D-O-D-A-U, gives it three stars and channels his inner comic book guy by saying simply, totally ignores all the laws of science. <laughs> and finally, yeah. a reviewer named Jason gives it four stars and also channels the comic book guy. An extra star for the spectacularly crappy cover. Worst Doctor Who this ever. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's hear what you had to give it. Jenny, you are our guest, so we're going to let you go first. Out of five stars, how many stars would you give this?
0: It's tricky because I feel like the writing, just the writing in and of itself is so easy to get through and nice which is not the case with so many of these other ones but in terms of actually being interested in or liking the plot i didn't like it's kind of that interesting which but that's not Dix's fault like i that's why i'm struggling a little bit i think i would do it better than 3.4 though i i would give it i'll do a four out of five i think it's it's good it was unbothered and pleasurable at times okay
2: that sounds (laughs) reasonable Okay, Dalton, how about you?
1: 3.5 for me. The story isn't the best, but it's not the worst. And uh, yeah, Terrence Dix does do a good job with what he had to work with. Even with some of the issues I had with the science being all completely screwed up, I still enjoyed it enough yeah, so not a complete
2: piece of trash. So 3.5. <laughs> not a complete piece of trash. <laughs> that should be <laughs> it on the back cover. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
0: We're gonna get a bouquet of roses and put that little card in there and then lay it on Dix's grave. <laughs> oh
2: no, no, no! Oh god, don't say that. We're gonna get pilloried him, for. The... We're gonna get pilloried for that for sure. No. Oh god. Oh, thank you, Jenny. I've
0: unintentionally <laughs> done something. That's okay. No, not not him personally. Not him personally okay. at all.
2: That's okay. Our iTunes ratings are screwed to shit anyway, so it doesn't matter. Really? Yeah, yeah. It is. We'll we'll talk about it. And as for me. I would also give this a 3.5 because the story really is kind of a triumph of style over substance. It looks really good, it's well acted, and it's scary. But once you start applying fridge logic to it, you realize, wait a minute, antimatter doesn't work this way. I'm sure those windmills will keep them cool. Windmills do not work that way. Good night. And yet... Terrence Dix still manages without the performance by Liz Sladen when she's terrified because she can recognize that the thing is nearby and all these other bits of performance that actually make the story fit together quite well. He still manages to give it a good go on the page and the changes that he makes, and I sometimes take him to task for this, the changes that he makes are generally good ones. He does remove a few lines that I like when the doctor is being taken to the TARDIS by Salomar. He turns to him at one point and says, usually I
0: only entertain friends
2: in the TARDIS. Shut up! (laughs) And it's this (laughs) lovely little Bon type of line and it's not there but it doesn't matter because it's still a pretty good book. So yeah, 3.5. Well, thank you guys. Mm -hmm. And thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time. Next time we discuss Terran Stick's novelization of The Pyramids of Mars. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club the Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also feel free to follow us on Twitter, we're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will. Email me directly at emperor at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line, so I don't ignore it. Thank you, Jenny, for coming back and joining us for this one. <laughs> Hopefully we will see more of you as the new year comes on. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye.